Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 127. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on September 12th, 2023, in a hotel room with a noisy air conditioner somewhere on the West Coast. As we do, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. It's been a while since we did that whole thing. By popular demand, on October 6, 2023, we will do another meetup for fans of the podcast, this time somewhere between Philadelphia and Princeton. I'll be aiming for a craft brewery in the region, probably in Bucks County, PA, just at the edge of the northern border of New Sweden, at least according to the most expansive claims. When I have the details nailed down, I'll announce it on the podcast, the website formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc. I imagine I'll aim to get to the venue, wherever it is, by 4.30 or so, just as we did in Washington and Austin. And we'll go until the conversation gets stale or I get tired. If you are interested, please send me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Or direct message me on X, Twitter, etc., or Facebook, so I can get a sense of the numbers who might be showing up. Should be fun. For those of you listening along in sequence, it might be a bit surprising that we are back to Roger Williams in Rhode Island. At the end of the last episode, I'd raised the possibility of continuing with New Sweden, but my muse interfered. To follow that story properly, we need to spend more time in New Netherland and the Big news there in the early 1640s was Keefe's War, a bloody and unnecessary fight between Governor William Keefe and his men and regional tribes in the Lene Lenape group. In doing the reading for that, I realized it would be best to return to Roger Williams and his struggle to ensure the independence of his colony at Providence and the related settlements on Aquidneck Island, increasingly known as Rhode Island. That I have flip-flopped a bit on the schedule is all the evidence you need that I am conjuring these episodes as I go, with no real plan. So be it. This is my journey through the history of the Americans, rough patches and all, and I hope you enjoy coming along for the ride. I hope we at least get points for authenticity. Of course, this episode will mean a bit more to you if you remember at least the gist of our series on Roger Williams from back in March... 2023. The year is 1642, and the English world is in turmoil. By summer, King Charles I and the Parliament would be at actual war with each other, the first English civil war. This is not the podcast for that story in detail. Please go listen to the History of England podcast for a deep dive on that. They have many recent episodes on the English Civil War but its implications for the history of the Americans would be profound. At the great risk of oversimplifying, not something I'm often accused of, the Civil War was in part the consequence of the events we described in the first two episodes of 2023, the rise of the Puritans, part one and two. Longstanding and attentive listeners will recall that the Parliament and the Crown collided during the 1620s, over the extent of royal authority and the prerogatives of parliament. 
In those years, Puritans tended to support Parliament, and many, though not all, of the Crown's most vocal opponents in Parliament were therefore Puritans. It did not help matters that James I and especially Charles I were strong supporters of the Institutional Church of England. Charles would appoint the infamous William Laud, first as bishop and then archbishop. Laud would oppress Puritan clergy and laymen alike, causing many of them to flee England in the 1630s in a wave of emigration known today as the Puritan Great Migration. Perhaps a quarter of those fleeing Puritans would settle in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and its colonial offspring in New England. Others would end up in the Caribbean or Ireland, and a few scattered to other places in North America, including Virginia, Maryland, and New Netherland. Also, at the end of the 1620s, Charles dismissed Parliament. He would not call another one until 1640, when he would need money to wage war, putatively on behalf of Protestants, in France and Germany. After a failed short Parliament, Charles called a new Parliament in November 1640. It would be dominated by Puritans, including such people as Sir Henry Vane, who had, you all know, been governor of the Massachusetts Bay and a supporter of Anne Hutchinson until he was defeated in their elections of 1637. This parliament would assert the right to stay in session as long as it wished and would come to be known as the Long Parliament. From the American point of view, the most important and immediate consequence of the Civil War was to end the migration of Puritans to New England. They were now running the show in London, at least. Puritans in England had the power to end their own persecution. They impeached Laud and tossed him in the tower in 1640, and by the outbreak of the war in 1642, they had a cause to fight for at home. Some of the most important men in Massachusetts returned to do their part. The result was economic stagnation in Massachusetts. Unlike Virginia and increasingly Maryland, the colony did not produce any big cash crops that could be sold for money. Yes, the baymen sold some furs, timber, and salted codfish. But by and large, Massachusetts depended on new immigrants to bring gold and silver money that could be used to buy the many goods it still required from Europe. Now not only were there few new immigrants, but some of the wealthiest men packed up and went back, taking their money with them. The Bay increasingly looked to the interior of New England for new economic opportunities. At the same time, John Winthrop, John Cotton, and the leaders of the Bay remained committed to religious conformity. They were vexed, terribly vexed, that Providence and Rhode Island only a few days away by foot or sail, harbored all sorts of annoying dissidents, including Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson and her followers. By various machinations, the Bay maneuvered to get control over the territory Williams and the Hutchinsons and their fellow free thinkers had carved out on the Narragansett Bay. By 1642, Providence was still a small town of two or three hundred residents, with one muddy street lined with houses and a few shops. There were also two settlements on Aquidneck Island, one on the northern tip, today's Portsmouth, and the other in the south, the town of Newport. The Hutchinsons and their followers had started the settlement in the north in 1638, but soon the wealthy merchant William Coddington picked up his ball and bat and established Newport, which had an excellent harbor. 
Those of you who remember our last episode on Anne Hutchinson will recall that her loving husband, Will, died in the spring of 1642. Ministers from the Bay, who had visited Anne at least once before, arrived again, asking her to recant. When she refused, they told her that it was in her interest to do so, because Massachusetts would soon take over Rhode Island. They were wrong, but only because Roger Williams thwarted them, which is the story of this episode. Hutchinson, fearful that they were right, packed up her family and moved them to New Netherland, settling in the Bronx. It was their misfortune to land in the middle of Keefe's War, and all but one of them would perish at the hands of Indians enraged over the recent depredations of the Dutch. The aforementioned machinations by which the Bay Colony asserted jurisdiction over a good part of Rhode Island's territory are complex, and I'll do you the favor of skipping over them. Suffice it to say that a group of settlers in the region led by William Arnold, the great-great-grandfather of the notorious traitor Benedict Arnold, concocted competing and frankly fraudulent claims to lands that had been sold to Williams and his followers by the Wampanoag and the Narragansetts. Apparently, William Arnold was the tree from which Benedict did not fall far from, or something like that. Anyway, to enforce those claims, in September 1642, they approached Winthrop and company and offered to submit themselves to the jurisdiction of the Bay in return for recognition of their claims against Williams. This was the opportunity that Massachusetts, long troubled by the nest of Puritans doing it wrong, a mere hop, skip, and a jump away, was looking for. As troubling, Plymouth and Connecticut were licking their chops, If Rhode Island was going to be dismembered and then chopped into bits, the godly men of those edge colonies wanted in. Now let's go to John Barry from his book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul. Quote, Until now, relations between the island towns of Portsmouth and Newport and Providence on the mainland had been friendly and cooperative. For example, Islanders had authorized Williams to represent them in negotiating an agreement with Mayantanami for Narragansett help in the destruction of the wolves that are now upon the island. But in politics, the towns had done nothing in concert. Keeping themselves even more apart were other scattered settlements too small to call towns. Now, except for the 13 men who had actually submitted themselves to Massachusetts, All those elsewhere, on either the mainland or the island, felt alarm. They understood what the Bay's assertion of authority over Patuxet meant. They understood the significance of the Plymouth and Connecticut claims to land. They recognized that their infinitely more powerful neighbors now threatened to devour the refuge Williams had created. They recognized that if that happened then the fundamental liberties of the country would be devoured as well, and the freedoms Williams had established and they had enjoyed would quite definitely disappear. All the settlements of Rhode Island, both on the island and on the mainland, were outcast societies. None had economic, political, or military power. They could not protect themselves. They needed the legal authority that only a patent, a charter, could give them with a power behind it strong enough to intimidate the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Plymouth, and Connecticut. Such authority and such a power could only come from England. Their only possible protection lay in England. 
Eleven days after the Massachusetts court accepted the Arnold faction's submission, representatives of Portsmouth and Newport met in a general court and ordered that a committee shall be appointed to consult about the procuration of a patent for this island and islands and lands adjacent. The mainland towns also formally authorized sending someone to England to procure a charter. The choice was obvious. Among all these outcasts, Williams clearly had a superior understanding of the English government and superior connections to the powerful. Had he returned to England at the time of his banishment, he would soon have found himself in a prison cell, probably after an executioner had cut off his ears, bored a hole in his tongue, and taken a branding iron to his cheeks. But much had changed in the seven years since. In the spring of 1643, Roger Williams began a journey back to London for a charter, one that would guarantee freedoms that existed nowhere else in the world. Back to me, Roger Williams confronted a daunting political problem. He was returning to a London dominated by conformist Puritans, precisely the sort of people who'd expelled him from Massachusetts Bay for all the reasons described in our several earlier episodes on Williams. Worse, Puritans from Massachusetts had returned to London to support the parliamentarians in the Civil War and to raise money for Massachusetts. Among them were Thomas Weld and Hugh Peter. Weld had cross-examined Williams at his trial, and Peter had replaced him as the minister for the church at Salem, excommunicated him, and extirpated lingering support for Williams' extreme separatism in the congregation. They hadn't gone to England to oppose Williams. They were there to seek support for Massachusetts, basing their sales pitch on the need to convert the Indians. But when Williams appeared, they would get to work against him. Williams had to go to London indirectly. Ocean-going ships did not much call in the ports of Rhode Island, and the Massachusetts Bay was closed to them. He went to New Amsterdam, knowing that he could catch a lift to Europe much more quickly there. The long journey would leave him time to develop a plan to persuade the movers and shakers in a parliament at war to give him a charter for Providence in Rhode Island that would prevent the Bay, Plymouth, and Connecticut from carving them up. Indeed, the journey was not only an opportunity to develop a plan, but it may have given shape to it. He would win his argument by writing a book about the Indians of New England. It's now early 1643, and Roger Williams has traveled overland from Protestant to New Amsterdam, arriving there in the middle of a savage fight between the Dutch, or at least the government of New Netherland, and the local tribes. Keefe's War, as it's known to us, was as violent and even more wasteful than the Pequot War. It was the war that would, as we have already seen, take the lives of Anne Hutchinson and her family a few months later, in August 1643. We'll do an episode on Keefe's War fairly soon. We do not know what Williams did or what he was thinking during his time in New Amsterdam because his correspondence from that period doesn't survive. Perhaps he visited Anne Hutchinson that spring, just a few miles away in the wilderness of the Bronx. John Winthrop recorded that by the mediation of Mr. Williams, several tribes made peace with the Dutch. But even if Winthrop got the story right, we know that Williams did not end the war because the Siwanois would kill all but one person in the Hutchinson household a few months after Williams left. 
Now let's go to John Barry, who imagines fairly, I think, the context in which Williams would prepare the political battle space to his benefit and that of Rhode Island. Quote, On the voyage to England, it could not have escaped him, with his nuanced and sophisticated understanding of the colliding intellectual, political, and religious forces in England, that the subject of Indians highlighted his own strength and exploited Massachusetts' weaknesses. For the level of the Bay's hypocrisy in regard to Indians exceeded that in all else. Nor could it have escaped him that both England's security and scripture made Indians of tremendous importance to those men active in English political and religious life, especially to those Puritans actively supporting Parliament in the Civil War. To them, the failure to advance Protestant Christianity among Indians was the greatest disappointment in America. The Spanish and Portuguese had imposed Catholicism upon millions with the sword. Although the French had less success because they had eschewed force, French priests had proselytized with considerable return throughout the Mississippi Valley. All right, interjection here. That hadn't actually happened yet and wouldn't for more than 30 years after William sailed for London, a curious error on John Barry's part. Perhaps he meant to write the St. Lawrence Valley, where the French had been spreading Christ's word. Back to Barry. But what results had the English achieved? They'd achieved nothing. They'd achieved nothing because despite all their rhetoric, they'd tried nothing. Not the Virginia Company, not Plymouth, not the Massachusetts Bay, not the Connecticut or New Haven colonies, all of whose founding documents claim to justify colonization because it advanced Christ's kingdom among Indians, had made the slightest effort to convert Indians. Yet Weld and Peter were soliciting money for just that purpose. Interjection, Maryland had actually made some effort on the part of Catholic priests who'd gone along with the Calverts. Back to Barry. Besides the security provided by adding millions of Protestants to the struggle against the so-called whore of Babylon, that would be the Roman church, Puritans had a second reason to concern themselves with the conversion of the Indians. Many believed the gospel had to be spread around the world and the conversion of the Jews must occur before Christ would return. And a growing number believed that these Indians in America may be Jews, especially of the ten tribes, that is, the lost tribes of Israel, and therefore to hope that the work of Christ among them may be as a preparatory to his own appearing. Back to me, Williams understood all of this, although he didn't agree with all of it. Long-standing listeners with truly excellent memories will recall that one of the points that had distinguished Williams from the clerical leaders of the Bay was his belief that any valid conversion of Indians had to be fully informed and voluntary. He'd gone to the trouble to learn their language precisely so that he could proselytize to them. He also knew that Weldon Peter, who had written a promotional tract for Massachusetts, had excused the failure to convert Indians on the grounds that they were so wild, so far removed from behaving in a civilized way, that they first had to be tamed before they could be converted. Williams had long held to a very different view of the Indians. Recall that 
He had insisted that the English needed to buy land from the Indians in voluntary transactions, rather than simply encroaching on it, and sat down at a desk in that rolling ship in the North Atlantic to make his case. He scribbled out a book with a long title that precisely described its subject, quote, a key into the language of America, or an help to the language of the natives in observations of the customs, manner, and worships, etc., of the aforesaid narratives in peace and war, in life and death, by Roger Williams of Providence in New England. It had the appearance of a grammar or dictionary, with columns of Algonquin words and their English meanings pertaining to a given topic, travel, trade, home, fire, eating, hunting, tobacco, and so forth. But between those subject categories, Williams wrote insightful observations about the culture and practices and religion of the Indians of New England. The impression conveyed was that the Indians were quite civilized and more than capable of conversion in their current state. The implication was that Weld and Peter did not know what they were talking about, and to the extent that the Puritans in England were relying on the Bay Colony to spread their religion to North America, they would fail. The book would persuade English Puritans that Williams was the leading authority on the Indians of America, and thereby establish Williams' credibility in precisely the right circles. Williams arrived in London in June 1643, and must have quickly reconnected with his friend, Sir Henry Vane. Vane, you will recall, had been governor of Massachusetts six years before. He'd been one of Anne Hutchinson's important supporters and had worked with Williams to ensure that the Narragansetts joined an alliance with the Bay instead of the Pequots. Shared adversity builds trust, and now Vane was in a position to help Williams. A lot. Vane was close to Oliver Cromwell, who most of you at least vaguely know would take charge after the victory of Parliament in the ongoing Civil War some years later. Vane almost certainly introduced Williams to John Milton, who was very close to Vane. There's no surviving direct evidence that it was at this time that Williams first met Milton, but there are two bits of indirect evidence. The first is that Williams was introduced to Gregory Dexter, who was John Milton's printer. Then printers were effectively publishers rather than mere outsourced manufacturers of physical books. Dexter would quickly publish a key into the language of America. It would hit the streets by September 1643, and only a year later became such good friends with Williams that he would return with him to Providence. The second bit of circumstantial evidence has implications that actually go far beyond helping Roger Williams publish his book. In the next year, in November 1644, Milton would publish his tract Areopagitica, today considered among history's most influential philosophical defenses of the right to speech and expression. The evidence for Williams' influence is that Areopagitica marked a major reversal in Milton's thinking. Up until that point, Milton had argued for enforcing religious conformity through censorship, just as virtually everybody in the Christian world did. But he flip-flopped the same year that Roger Williams arrived in London and was circulating with Vane. If so, then the influence of Roger Williams on the history of the Americans, even our recent history, goes far beyond his notions of religious liberty and the founding of Providence in Rhode Island. 
Areopagitica, not only influenced English constitutional development in the mid-17th century, but it would be invoked by the Founding Fathers in the framing of the Constitution and cited by the United States Supreme Court in some of the most important free speech cases of the 20th century. Quoting now from the Wikipedia entry. The court has cited Areopagitica by name in four cases. Most notably, the court cited Areopagitica in the landmark case New York Times Company v. Sullivan to explain the inherent value of false statements. The court cited Milton to explain the dangers of prior restraint in Times Film Corporation v. City of Chicago. Later, Justice Douglas concurred in Eisenstadt v. Baird, citing Areopagitica to support striking down restrictions on lecturing about birth control. Finally, Justice Black cited Areopagitica when he dissented from the court's upholding of restrictions on the Communist Party of the United States against a free speech and free associations challenge in Communist Party of the United States versus Subversive Activities Control Board. In each instance, Milton is cited by the court's members to support a broad and expansive protection of free speech and association. Thank you, Roger Williams. Williams was therefore already moving in the most important social circles in London in 1643, which in and of itself conferred a fair amount of influence, and the publication of A Key to the Language of America validated him as a serious intellectual and furtherance of the Puritan cause. Unfortunately, developments in New England were moving against him. On May 19, 1643, While Roger Williams was sailing to England, the four conforming Puritan colonies of Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, Connecticut, and now New Haven, entered into an alliance they called the United Colonies of New England. Its purpose was to provide for the common defense against the tribes in the region, New Netherland to the west and possibly the French to the north. The recitations in the agreement are interesting because they refer to the extent to which the Indians understood English politics. Quote, The natives have formally committed sundry insolences and outrages, and seeing, by reason of the sad distractions in England which they have heard of, and by which they know we are hindered, blah, 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 Back to me, the Indians didn't know these things because they had a sophisticated intelligence operation designed to ferret out the weaknesses of their adversaries. They knew them because of the frequent casual encounters between the tribes and the local settlers. English and Indian alike chatted as they traded or worked or socialized, exchanging the news of the day, including the latest word from ships just arrived. It's very easy to forget that in between the big historical events we learn about, there were countless thousands of moments between Europeans and Indians that were perfectly normal and friendly and are now almost entirely lost to history. In any case, the United Colonies expressly excluded Providence and Rhode Island from their alliance, even though there were settlers there who would have joined. One of the reasons was that the other colonies had designs on those lands and, as importantly, wished to eliminate the haven for dissidents just over their own borders. That would not be easy to do as long as Mayantanami, the great sachem of the Narragansetts and the long-standing ally of Roger Williams, stood in their way. Whether by conspiracy within the United Colonies, 
or an unrelated Indian plot, the leaders of the United Colonies heard the accusation that Mayantanami was trying to organize all the tribes in the region for an uprising against the English. When confronted, Mayantanami suspected his old adversary Uncas of the Mohegans, with whom he had tangled during the Pequot War. You remember him. Mayantanami and the Narragansetts went to war against the Mohegans. It did not go well. Uncas captured Mayantanami, demanded a ransom from the Narragansett, collected the ransom, and then, rather than releasing Mayantanami, asked the United Colonies what they wanted him to do with him. Now to John Barry, quote, The United Colonies commissioners concluded unanimously that it would not be safe to set Mayantanami at liberty. Neither had we had sufficient grounds for us to put him to death. They then sought the opinion of five clergy who decided that he should be killed, but not by them, and so the commissioners told Uncas to kill him. Interjection, this was not the nuanced moral reasoning that one might have expected from the founders of Harvard. Back to Barry. Uncas, a party of Mohegans and two Englishmen escorted Mayantanami into the forest, and an Indian came up behind him and, quote, clave his head with a hatchet. According to one report, Uncas then cut out a piece of Mayantanami's shoulder, ate it, and pronounced it the sweetest meat he had ever ate. It made his heart strong. Back to me. It would be some time before Williams would hear of Mayantanami's death, because he was in London. There's apparently no record of his reaction, but it must have been a blend of sadness and anxiety at the least, even if Williams might not have been surprised. With Mayantanami gone, William Arnold recruited two lesser sachems to sign a deed that purported to grant him land previously granted to Williams. He then forged alterations to a copy of Williams' deed and petitioned the court in Massachusetts to grant him title. This the magistrates did not do, but they did authorize a raid on one Samuel Gorton and his followers, one of the more annoying dissidents living under the authority of Williams in his territory. In October 1643, while Williams was being embraced by the leading Puritans in London, the leading Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay marched soldiers through Providence and seized Gorton. He would barely avoid execution. The independents of Providence and Rhode Island were hanging by the barest of threads. The maneuvering in London continued. Williams bolstered his reputation still further by pitching in to find wood for Londoners to burn the king's army at Newcastle having cut off the city's supply of coal. That same winter, Parliament established a committee in foreign plantations and appointed Robert, Earl of Warwick, governor-in-chief of all American plantations. Now to Barry, quote, Immediately upon the committee's creation, and without waiting for instruction from Boston, Thomas Weld sought a charter which would bring Massachusetts control of Providence, of Newport, and Portsmouth, of Patuxet and Shawamet, sure I'm pronouncing that New England stuff a little wrong, of all the occupied areas in and around Narragansett Bay. This would not only crush William's experiment in freedom, it would push him out in the wilderness once again. Weld lobbied hard, approaching members of the committee individually. In his conversations, he did not simply present his case. While Williams was away from London trying to find fuel supplies, 
Weld was asking for the signatures of committee members on a proposed charter for Massachusetts. Weld convinced Warwick and eight others to sign it. Weld then dated the document, making it seem as if the committee had voted on it. This document would become known as the Narragansett Patent. But for any charter to be legal, it had to pass the table, i.e. a majority of the entire committee had to approve it during a committee meeting. The majority also had to include Warwick, the chair. Even if the rest of the committee was unanimous against him, his opposition would defeat any proposal. The charter then had to be formally signed and enrolled by appropriate seals placed upon it. Weld's charter had no force. The total of nine signatures fell short of a majority. In dating the document, Weld had clumsily selected a Sabbath. Members would never have desecrated the Sabbath to discuss such an issue, or any issue short of a major emergency. The date was also one on which at least one signatory was not in London. The signatures clearly had been collected one at a time, not at a committee meeting when the charter was discussed. Back to me. Wells' Narragansett charter was not valid under English law for the aforementioned technical reasons, but it might hold up in a Massachusetts court. Worse, Weld had secured Warwick's signature, which in theory put Warwick on the side of the Bay Colony rather than with Williams. Williams' political problem had gotten even worse. Fortunately, Roger Williams was close friends with Sir Henry Vane, who would help him turn the tide in the lobby of Parliament. But first, he had to discredit his old nemesis, John Cotton. Seven years after expelling Roger Williams, and five years after turning on Anne Hutchinson, John Cotton remained a famous and important minister among Puritans, even in England. He'd been appointed, in absentia, to the Westminster Assembly of Divines, which was charged with establishing Puritanism in the Church of England. There was a lot to do, from enforcing Puritan conformity to the abolition of bishops to the development of the new relationship between church and state. Henry Vane was a member, as were 150 other Englishmen, 15 Scots, and several clergy in New England, cotton among them. About the time that Weld was securing the signatures on the Narragansett patent, somebody, perhaps even an ally of Williams, published a letter of John Cotton that had been written back in 1636 as the banished Williams was making his way through the winter wilderness to Narragansett territory. The letter attacked Williams in a harsh and ugly tone, suggesting that if he died in the wilderness, it would be his fault, not the magistrates. This gave Williams the opportunity to respond which he did in a pamphlet published in February 1644. Mr. Cotton's letter examined and answered. William's pamphlet landed after everyone in London who mattered had heard that Massachusetts had marched into Rhode Island, captured Samuel Gordon, put him on trial, and slapped him into irons. Not a great look. The Puritans in Parliament were waging a civil war and needed all the support they could get from anti-royal moderates. Massachusetts was making them look bad. The flower and chivalry of London also knew the famously likable Williams, who'd been circulating in London for eight months and had not seen Cotton in person since he'd fled a few steps ahead of Archbishop Laud ten years before. So Williams had an advantage. His reply to Mr. Cotton's letter, landing just as it did, was a propaganda masterstroke. 
Within just a month, on March 14, 1644, Roger Williams had secured a charter for Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations that passed the table with all appropriate process, signatures, and seals. Williams also obtained a letter of safe conduct signed by leading members of Parliament, which would allow him to return to Providence with his charter via Boston, where he could not now be arrested, notwithstanding his banishment eight years before. John Barry summarized the terms of the charter, quote, The charter itself was remarkable both for what it did say and what it did not. The committee could have responded to the numerous complaints it had heard of disorder in the colony by imposing a governor or defining a structure of government. Instead, it gave the colony full power and authority to govern and rule themselves and such others as shall hereafter inhabit within any part of the said tract of land by such a form of civil government as by voluntary consent of all or the greater part of them shall find most suitable to their estates and conditions. The only limitation was that said laws, constitutions, and punishments be conformable to the laws of England, so far as the nature and constitution of the place will admit. By allowing the greater part of the inhabitants, i.e. a majority, to establish any form of government and laws which they chose, the committee explicitly authorized a fully democratic government. This marked an extraordinary liberty. More extraordinary was the fact that the committee left all decisions about religion to the majority, knowing full well that it wanted to completely and utterly remove the state from the issue of worship. Back to me. Williams had won. He had created the only society then in the world with complete religious freedom, and it was backed by the authority of the Parliament of England, dominated by Puritans and then engaged in a great civil war. It was an astounding achievement. This is a great place to stop. We'll return to Roger Williams again, for he would have to save Rhode Island one more time. But when precisely we do that is difficult even for me to know. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.